Uh, I want to preach on some verses this morning that I'm about 110% sure you've never heard a sermon before on in your life. The only reason you have it here is because this is the first time we've gone through the book of Romans. But unless you've ever been a part of a church that's faithful with the Word of God and walking verse by verse, letter by letter, you, you've never heard a sermon on this. A couple of reasons for that is, number one, uh, it, it requires a lot of work to walk through these verses. And then secondly, what is said here is very offensive. And so the majority, overwhelming majority of pastors just completely avoid these verses. And the only way that you've come across them, probably more than likely, is as if you've ever read them yourself walking through these. Now, they're not skipped because they're not important. They are some of the most important passages we'll find in the book of Romans. In fact, if I ask you what letter in this Bible is about the gospel from beginning to end, you would raise your hand and go, oh, I know the book of Romans. That's right. So here in the midst of this letter, as we draw upon chapter 5, Paul's going to use these verses, 12 through 21, as a basis for his argument that the gospel is by grace alone. So these are very powerful and very important passages that we need to understand. Yet at the same time, one very popular commentator on these passages says this, that this or these verses rather are the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Paul's writing. In other words, these are some of the most offensive verses in the Bible. And because they're offensive, they cause a lot of people to do a lot of funny things with them. They are not difficult because they're hard to understand. They're difficult because your flesh simply does not want to believe the things that I will teach you from the scriptures this morning. Right. Uh, it's not hard. It's not hard to follow along. It's simple black and white. But because it stings the pride, you're going to find endless amount of different interpretations about these passages. And I found that consistently true. Anytime we run across passages that really cut you, if you go to study those passages, you're going to find everybody twisting and bending and reshaping because they like to smooth edges, they like to round corners, they like to soften the blow. That's why you've never heard a sermon on these verses this morning, because they cut us so deeply. Now Paul is really about to crank up on the subject of sin. In the first four chapters, we've run across the word sin in its various forms, sin, sinner, sin, those sort of things, seven times. And some of them have been very important. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's used it and they've been very important. But once we hit 5 to 8, things change because once we get on the other side of 8, we get 9 to the end of the book, he uses the word sin once. But in between 5 and 8, he uses this word 36 times. So because he's really about to crank up on the subject of sin, all of a sudden these passages are controversial. You see how this works, right? But anytime you talk about sin in the Bible, it's not going to be very far before you hear about our Savior in the Bible. So these are some of the most Christological or Christ-centered verses that you're going to find in the book of Romans. In fact, if you'll look with me at the end of verse or at the end of chapter five, notice Paul's summary, the second half of verse 21, through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the end of chapter six. Very familiar passage. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the end of verse 7, or the end of chapter 7, rather. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then finally, look at the end of chapter 8. You see the pattern here? End of chapter 8. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's going to walk us through sin. And it's going to get very personal and it's going to get very painful. But he never leaves us in our sin. He always carries us to our Savior. And so at the end of every one of these chapters, he comes back to the reality that we have a Savior and His name is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what Paul's specifically about to do in 12 through 21, back in chapter 5, is he's going to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ to a greater measure than he has thus far in this letter. He's going to go higher once we get to chapter 9. But here in chapter 5, he's going to take us as far up or farther up in the mountain that he has so far in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he's going to do that, he's going to bring two men that have profoundly changed the course of humanity. He's going to compare two historical figures that have affected the entirety of every man that has ever been born. And the two men that Paul wants to compare that we need to understand is the Lord Jesus and Adam. He's going to bring Adam into the picture. Go back to chapter 5 verse 14 and let me show you this. Romans 5 verse 14. Look at the second half of that verse. Adam, you see his name, and he doesn't name him often. He's often just referred to as the one. But here he names them Adam, who is a type of capital him who was to come. So in other words, we have so much to learn about our Lord through Adam. The Lord wants to teach us about himself through this one man, the first man, Adam. Now he's going to draw upon some differences. And don't let me lose you here. Look at verse 15. He uses this phrase, not like. Verse 15, the free gift, in reference to what Jesus did, the free gift is not like the transgression in what Adam did. Look at verse 16. Again, the difference between the two. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. And so one of the ways that he's going to teach us about the Lord is he's going to show us the difference between what Adam did and what Christ did in ways they are not alike. But in other ways, they are very identical in the way that they are appropriated or how they work in our lives. Look at verse 15. He uses the phrase, even so. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, in the very same way, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Does the very same thing in verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, or just like, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So we've got two men here that Paul's going to draw upon, and he's going to give us illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration, walking all the way through these chapters, so we can see the profound effect of Adam, and we can see the profound effect of Christ and how he redid everything or redeemed everything that Adam has done. Now that begs the question, what can be said about Adam at this point? And you need to understand this. And I've told you this before. 
Adam is a real historical man. Adam is not a metaphor. And the reason that I want to put emphasis on that is because so many in evangelical Christianity has abandoned the idea that Adam was a real person. When you abandon creation, a literal creation by the hand of God, you have to abandon Adam. I mean, his name, after all, simply means man. And so if you abandon creation, you abandon Adam. If you've abandoned Adam, once you come to this illustration and comparison that Paul is making, you're pulling a thread out of the foundation of the gospel because Paul's saying this is one of the basis for the argument that the gospel is by grace alone. It has to be by grace alone. You see, you have to be careful what you buy into and choose to no longer believe because you're pulling threads out of the gospel that we hold fast to. And I bring that to say this. And many of you will find yourself worshiping at a different church eventually at some point in your life, especially you younger kids. If you ever find yourself sitting under a man that does not preach the literal creation or the fact that Adam is an historical figure and not just some metaphor... If you ever find yourself there, grab the backpack, put the kids' toys in, pick the sippy cups and all the passies up off the floor that you forgot about, and walk out the door and don't ever go back in there. Because that man will eventually, eventually undo the gospel. That's the way God has tied this together. And so Paul's going to form this argument based on the reality of Adam. So we have to understand that he's comparing two men. And if it applies to Christ, then it applies to Adam. If Adam does not exist, then you've got to make an argument that Christ even exists to begin with. So there's two men here. Paul is going to make a comparison. And the purpose of this is to exalt Christ and for us to understand the gospel better. So he begins with Adam. So let's begin with Adam as well. Look at verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. Notice what he says. Therefore, just as through one man, we know who that is, that is Adam, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. Now, we don't have to turn back. We're all aware of Genesis chapter 3 and what happened. Adam was given, was given a specific law or commandment by God not to eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, for in the day of eat of it you will what? You will die. So we know very clearly what took place in Genesis chapter 3, but let me pause right there because I was reminded of this when I was going through this this morning. Who took of the fruit first? Eve. Who was held responsible for what went wrong? Adam. And I bring that up to say this, you men need to understand that you are responsible for the spiritual health and maturity of your family. You will be held accountable. You better get this one right. Adam did not get this one right. Therefore, Adam is held morally culpable for the sin of his family. Needless to say, back at the passage, we understand what went on. Adam heard the Word of God, he understood the Word of God, and yet he rebelled, he rejected the Word of God. He set it aside and he chose to do his own thing rather than to submit to the command of God. And because of that, death followed. But the first death was not physical because he did not die in that moment. The first death was spiritual because he was removed from the presence of God. 
Remember how it all played out? Out of the Garden of Eden he went. The angels were placed before the garden in order that he might not go back in. And so no longer did he walk with the Lord in the cool of the morning. Adam had been ripped apart from his relationship with God. He had been separated from God. And then later on, we see death come about. Go back to the verse. Therefore, just as one man's sin entered into the world, and then the punishment for that sin, death through sin. And so what Adam did was he thoroughly and completely devastated the whole of entirety of mankind because sin and death came into creation through the rebellion of Adam and that sin separated all of man from God and all of man was therefore punished with death. That sin came to rest and reside on every heart of every man that was ever born. And I don't think anybody disagrees with what I just said. So you're like, what in the world is so controversial about that? Anybody with a right mind understands Genesis 3 and how has it affected us. But look at the next few words. These last few words where everything falls apart. And so death spread to all men that we know. But then he adds these last three words. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And what in the world does that mean? Does it mean that at some point along the way, because Adam sinned, we too would sin? Is Adam some kind of example for us that God says, all right, I started with the first man. We saw what the first man did. Therefore, throughout the rest of time, every man born is going to follow in the pattern of Adam. Is that what he means when he says, therefore, all sinned? You do realize that a great number of people follow along with that. Adam was nothing more than a pattern. And if Adam's a pattern, he doesn't have to be real. He can be a metaphor. That's just fine. It was something that played out that's going to repeat over and over again every time you and I walk through life. Or when it says that death spread to all men, therefore all sin, it simply means that since we were still in the, the loins of Adam, if you will, since we were going to be physically birthed from Adam, since we we're going to be of the line of Adam, we would inherit this sinful nature. I know you've heard that. I've been taught that my whole life. That because of what Adam did, that somehow we would inherit this sinful nature. And therefore, because we have this nature, we're going to repeat that nature and sin just like Adam did. Or does it mean this, that when Adam sinned, we sinned? Does it mean that what Adam did and his guilt has fallen upon us and we are guilty for the sin of Adam? You see, things can get really offensive there if we tell people that because of what Adam did, you're already condemned, you're already guilty because when Adam sinned, you sinned. I want to show you some passages on the bright side of things to help you begin to think this way. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Eddie told me, by the way, he would probably have to slide out. Uh, he had to slide out of the funeral last week. But nonetheless, let's, let's pause and pray for him because I know he's very sick this morning. Chris, would you, 
Would you pray for Brother Eddie for us, please? Ephesians chapter 2, we've got some things taking place that we rejoice in greatly. And when we walk through Ephesians, I pointed these passages out to you. I can't explain the depth of them. I can simply tell you what God is telling us and all that His grace has accomplished in our life. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. And notice how, well, Paul's not really beginning here, but we can see somewhat in verse 4 of how he's beginning. He says, but God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. So he lays this foundation. What he's about to tell us is based on the great mercy of God. And it's based on the great love of God. Now watch what God does. Even in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God has made us alive, notice, together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you've been saved. And then he walks into verse 6 and they're absolutely profound. And this is what I want us to see. And raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't miss that. When Christ was raised, according to Paul in Ephesians, you were raised. When Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father, according to Paul in Ephesians, you were seated at the right hand of the Father. How does this even work? In fact, in other places I could take you to this morning, when Christ died, you died. How does that even work? Well, it works according to the wisdom of God and in the mind of God and the administration of God. This is how God accounts things or accredits things or brings things into us in this relationship that we have in Christ. You do realize as a believer, you no longer have to fear death. Because when Christ died, you died. In other words, you've already died. Physically, literally, no. But in the mind of God, yes. Legally, yes. Just not experientially. Spiritually, yes. Which is more important, the physical or the spiritual? I tell you all the time, it's the spiritual. And that's why in the Bible, it doesn't refer to believers dying. What do believers do in the Bible? They go to sleep. Why? Because they've already died. We have such a union with Christ that when He died, we died. Therefore, we no longer fear death. Death has been conquered and we pass from this life into the presence of the Lord. What about when He was raised? When Jesus was raised, were you raised? 
Well, not literally, but legally. Not experientially, but spiritually. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. That's why Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 15. If you're not raised from the dead, Jesus was never raised from the dead. And you're like, how can you say that, Paul? Because you've been made one with Christ. And then he goes one step further. When Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, you were seated at the right hand of the Father. And I tell you, that's the toughest one for me to get because I'm really thinking if I had the understanding that I was truly seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, my life would look so different than it does now. But that's the reality in the mind and the wisdom of God. That's what God has done. He has seated you with Christ in Christ at His right hand. You died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, and you're seated with Christ even now. And you're like, how does, how does that work? It works very similar in the way with marriage. Very similar. Because my experiences are her experiences, her experiences have become my experiences. Let me give you an analogy even, or, or an illustration even further into that. We share finances. Now let's just say Dad makes a very poor choice. Because there's a vehicle he's been looking at just yesterday that cost over a hundred grand. I really want one bad. It's all mechanical, Chris. There's no electronics. There's no computer. The thing literally goes on for years and years and years and years. Every bit of it's mechanical. The clock is mechanical. And I thought, man, I'd just love to have one of those things. Now, if I did that, I would wreck and ruin our finances for many years to come. Would that influence her? Would that affect her? You better believe it would change her life as radically as it changed my life because we've been made one through the, the covenant of marriage. Do you understand that when you came into faith with Christ, you were made one with Him in such a way that His experiences have become your experiences? His victories has become your victories. His blessings are going to become your blessings. In fact, they already are spiritually in your life. Therefore, when Christ died, you die. Therefore, never fear death again. When He was raised, you were raised. You've already been raised in Him. And when He was seated, you were seated simply because through the gospel, you've been made one with Christ. Right? See how that works? It's the blessed privilege of being in union with the Son of God. Now go back to Romans 5 and I'll show you the bad side of this because it works in very in the very same way. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. And I'm going to slow down because this is the part that I really want you to understand and get because it's going to lead to greater rejoicing in your heart. Notice what he says, therefore just as through one man Sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's the very same type verb. It's the very same expression. Did you literally sin the day Adam rebelled against God? No. But did you legally sin the day Adam rebelled against God? Yes. You legally sinned. Because you were in union with the first man that God made, Adam. Did you fall into guilt the day Adam fell into guilt? Yes. Was it because you yourself were guilty? No. But it was because 
Adam incurred guilt because of his sin and we were in union with this first man, Adam. Therefore, when he fell, we fell. When he sinned, we sinned. When he incurred the guilt of God, we incurred the guilt of God. When he suffered the judgment of God, we suffered the judgment of God. And that's simply the design of how how God has formed this union between us and Christ. But before it was between us and Christ, it was between us and Adam. So apart from Christ, let me say it again in this way, we were in union with Adam. And not just physically, because we would eventually be born in the line of Adam, but because the way God reckoned it. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell guilty again, we fell guilty. And let me show you how this works out in the text and these rest of these verses. Because the rest of the verses are just an illustration of that one truth. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one who died, the many died. In other words, when judgment was passed down on Adam, death, there was, there was the spiritual separation and then followed the physical separation or the physical death. Does death ever affect anyone beyond Adam? Death affected everyone beyond Adam. And notice what he says here. He wants to carry it further into our understanding. Look, look at verses 13 and 14. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, I want you to understand this, so don't fade out on me. Adam was given one law, one command. Now Moses was given the Ten Commandments, if you will. But you do realize between Adam and Moses, there was no law. God never gave any specific commands. There was no Ten Commandments. Moses had yet to be born, nor had he led the children out of Israel or out of Egypt. So there was no law in between this period of time. If there's no law, then no law can be broken, right? And if the judgment for breaking law is death, that must mean between Adam and Moses, no one ever died because the law was never broken. Are you still with me? Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. In other words, between Adam and Moses, nobody messed up like Adam. They didn't have a command. They didn't have a law. They didn't have a rule. Adam got it. Nobody else got it. Adam broke it. Nobody else broke it. So from Adam to Moses... Therefore, if we're just held accountable for our own sin, nobody should die. Now, did anybody die in between Adam and Moses? Everybody did. In fact, God killed them all through the flood. You see how this is beginning to play out? In fact, Genesis 3 is when Adam fell. If you've ever read Genesis 5, it's the obituary of the Bible. The phrase is repeated over and over and over again. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. All the way through chapter 5. And you're like, what in the world is going on? I thought death was the punishment for sin. Well, it is. It's the punishment that was handed down from Adam. I'll tell you one more that most preachers in the right mind would never mention from the pulpit. And I only found one commentator from the 1800s that mentioned this. And he asked the question, do infants ever die? Oh, we kill them by the thousands here in America. 
Are they morally culpable for their own sin? No. They've never committed a sin. But do they die? Unfortunately, they do. So where is all this death coming from? It's coming from the one who sinned and the one who was condemned and the one who was judged with death. Notice verse 17. He says a very similar thing. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So we do know that what Adam did greatly affected us in the area of death. But it's not just death. What about sin? Look at verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression. In other words, because of what Adam did, judgment was handed down. And judgment was not just handed down upon Adam. Judgment was handed down upon all humanity. And look what that judgment was. Look back at verse 16. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in what? Condemnation. He repeats himself in verse 18. He says it more clearly. Look at verse, eight, <coughs> excuse me, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to who? All men. You see why this is so offensive? I really just want to be held accountable for the stuff I did. I don't want to be held accountable for the stuff anyone else did. But that's not what God has done. He made us one with Adam. And when Adam fell, we all failed. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam was condemned, we were all condemned because we were one with Adam. We were in union with Adam. And it gets worse. Look at verse 19. One more illustration that he gives us. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made what? Sinners. You were made a sinner. You were born a sinner. It is who you are. Do you want to know why you sin? It's simply because you're a sinner. Do you want to know why you can't stop sinning apart from Christ? It's because you were born a sinner. Do you want to know why you tell lies? Because Adam made you a liar. Do you want to know why you deceive people? Because Adam made you a deceiver. You see, when Adam stood in the garden, he was our head. He was our representative. Everything was hanging on him. And in rebellion, he rejected God, turned away from God. And we all suffer greatly from what Adam did. We are all sinners because Adam has made us so. In other words, without question, what Adam did was reckoned to us as if we had done it as well. Now, most people soften this with the phrase, in fact, let me just read you the Baptist faith and message. And then you can tell me if it's in agreement with these passages. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God, fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherits a nature and an environment that is inclined toward sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under then condemnation. That is not at all what that text says. That's how we've rounded the corner and softened the edges so we won't cut anybody. 
you did not inherit a sinful nature. You were made a sinner. That's like saying, Joey, you have some human qualities. And I would go, okay, you do realize it's because I'm human. That's almost a silly statement. And it's equally silly to say, did you realize you just, you have a sinful nature? I know you have a sinful nature. The reason that you have a sinful nature is because you were born a sinner. And that's exactly why you do the things that you do. And that's exactly why we were the children of wrath. Right, Brad? That's why we were born under the wrath of God. Now again, do you have a sinful nature? Yes. Do you sin? Yes. Will you be held accountable for your sin? I'll show you that in, that in a minute. Yes, you will. But you need to know first and foremost, all of that takes place because of what Adam did. Because you were in union with Adam. Now you ask the question, and I know here it comes, why would you do that? That seems so unfair. And here's why God did that. Because in the first man, He condemns us. But in the second man, He redeems us. And He redeems us the whole way. And the way that He does that brings so much glory upon the Son, we can't even begin to describe it all. Look at verse 15, and notice, watch how He begins to turn the corner here. The free gift, talking about what Christ has done. It's not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, notice what he says here, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Where our union with Adam brought us into sin, our union with Christ has brought us into grace. Never ending grace. If you're taking notes, just go back and read Romans 5 too. Because what Christ has done, you stand in the state of having been graced by God. You've been swept off your feet by the grace of God and that will never go away for the rest of eternity. In fact, in Ephesians 2, if we had time, we'd go back there and I would show you it's just waves of grace for the rest of eternity. Growing waves of grace that's going to sweep over you for the rest of your life. Why in the world would that happen? It's because you've been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been made one with the one who has received the favor from God. Therefore, there's nothing left for you except favor from God for the rest of eternity. The work of Christ conquered the death that Adam brought upon the world. And so now grace abounds to all those who are in Christ. But it's not just grace. It's life eternal as well. Notice verse 17. Notice the comparison. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through that one, oh, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in what? Life through the one, Jesus Christ. In Adam, you were born in death. You were stillborn. But in Christ... You've been born again. There is no more death. Death has nothing to do with Him. He's defeated death. Therefore, since you're married to the Son of God, your experience and His experience are the same. And because He holds eternal life in His hand, the only thing left for us is eternal life forevermore. You see, where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed and won life everlasting. And now we've been brought into union with that one man. And the only thing left for us is eternal life forevermore. He goes further. Look at verse 16. 
The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from, notice this, many transgressions resulting in justification. So now we've gone from condemnation to justification. We've gone from being guilty to being declared not guilty. And how did that take place? Simply by whom we were married to. You were born married to the first man, Adam. And the only thing Adam ever earned for you as a sorry husband was condemnation. That was the best that he could do. But now that marriage has been cut off and you've been married to a new man, and this man has won for us justification. So when the Father looks at us, He declares us not guilty. Based on what? Based on your husband. Because I know you as a bride, you've been guilty from day one, but you've married the man who is not guilty, therefore you are justified because you've been made one with Him. And now the Father looks at you and declares you not guilty. But notice the phrase, and I highlighted it when I went through, many transgressions. You see what He just did? Let's just say that you are not in union with Adam. Adam was nothing more than a metaphorical example of what you would eventually do. And you know what you would eventually did? You sinned. And you sinned on top of sin. So what He's saying is, what Christ did has won the victory over every single sin. Adam, your first sin. And every day since whatever age you started sinning all the way up to today, if you stack them up behind you, what Christ did gave you victory over all of that because He paid for every single one of those. I'm talking about every transgression of every wicked thought. Every wicked word, every wicked deed, it may amass all behind you, but it doesn't matter because of the fact that you're in union with Christ. All of that's been redeemed. Every bit of that. And because of that, we're justified. There's nothing you could have ever done or said that is not swept away in the grace of God through your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how much higher we're raising Christ now? Now look at verse 18. Look at what he says. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, he repeats himself, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Don't get confused. Jesus doesn't redeem everyone because he's not married to everyone. Go back and look at verse 17 and notice where he limits this. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. In other words, what Christ has done, He has done thoroughly, but He's only done it for those who are in union with Him. And listen, this morning you're either in union with Adam or you're in union with Christ. And the only way to be in union with the one who gives us eternal life is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's limited. But for those who have received it, it is absolutely unlimited. It is unlimited forgiveness and grace and life forevermore. Notice verse 19. Where that one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And this is Paul's last thought. Even so... 
through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In other words, as Adam made us sinners, our Lord has made us saints. That's absolutely mind-boggling. But this is how God has designed everything. You see, Adam was a very important man. We were all born from Adam, but it's not the physical line that gets you. It's what God has determined would take place through the sin of Adam. And that has condemned you. That's where you were born in condemnation. You were born in a state of having sinned against God. And the only thing that you did is you ran with it because He made you a sinner. Therefore, you sinned and you sinned and you sinned. But when we come to Christ, every bit of that is wiped away. You go from being a staunch sinner to being a saint just because you married the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the most incredible realities of the gospel that we have to understand. Now, I've got to mention verse 20 and 21, and then I'll finish this morning, but you have to see this. I don't want to leave it behind. Because remember what God did in Moses. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you think about this, with the law coming in, from a human perspective, that would restrain sin. Remember, we went from Adam to Moses without a law. And we know how wicked people were because God sent the flood and wiped them all out. So God brings in the law. So from the perspective of us, law's good, right? Law's going to restrain sin because I'm going to make some rules around here and you people are going to follow these rules and you're going to look right and you're going to act right and you're going to be right. Is that what the law did? No, it made it worse. And the reason that it made it worse is because of what Adam had made you. What does a sinner do with the law? Cast it behind his back. A sinner does with the law the same thing Adam did with that one command. I heard you, but I really don't care. So when we received the Ten Commandments, we did the very same thing. Oh, I hear you, God. I understand what you're saying, but you need to understand, I'm going to do what I want to do. In other words, the sin was magnified. And why in the world would God magnify sin in order that He might magnify the Son? Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through the one Jesus Christ our Lord. It doesn't matter how much you magnify sin. The grace of God sweeps it all away. But only through Christ. Now why in the world would Paul put this in here? Why do we need to know this? And I've already told you why people argue about it so much, but it's just matter of fact, very true. But why? Why? And let me tell you, reason number one, I'm convinced from the text, it's because God is magnifying hopelessness. He's already done this. We're in Romans chapter 5. Remember how He did it in Romans chapter 4? Because Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son... And Abraham was about 100 years old and Sarah was about 90 and the Lord says, you're going to have a son. And they're like, oh, okay. And by the way, I looked it up this week. I was curious. 
The oldest woman by natural means that gave birth was 59. And Sarah has a son at 90. But that's not the most remarkable part. Paul wants to increase the hopelessness of the situation. So look back at Romans chapter 4 verse 19. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body. Yeah, I'm a hundred and I'm going to give birth to a son. Okay. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And then he uses this word and I pointed out when we went through there. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. It was not just the fact that she was 90. Paul uses the word necros, which means corpse. Her womb was dead. Now the oldest living woman to give birth by natural means was 59. That was remarkable because the womb dies before then. But by the age of 90, there were, there, I told you when we went through, there's nothing going on down there. Hormones aren't flowing. Eggs aren't being released. To say it's impossible is to understate it. it it's not going to happen. And that's why Paul uses these words. Her womb is dead. She might as well not even have one. Why did he do that? Because he wants you to see the utter hopelessness of Abraham having a child. And the only way that Abraham could, and Sarah could ever have a child was through the power and the grace of God. Therefore, they had to trust God because of what God said. So why all this business in chapter 5? Why do I have to be guilty for what Adam did in order to increase the hopelessness? You were born dead. You were born a sinner. You were born in guilt and condemnation and judgment. It's far worse than you realized. You think that you reach some age, right? Some age of accountability. And because you had this sinful nature and because you live in a fallen world, one day you just stepped out in there and sinned and God cut you off. You don't understand. You were cut off day one when Adam sinned. And every sin that you ever committed, you were cut again and cut again and cut again. And every wicked thought, cut again. You do realize I could reach into your life and pull one thread of one sin out of one moment in your life. And that's enough to condemn you to the wrath of God for the rest of eternity, according to Scripture. Oh, listen, you were so dead. You were born this way. You were born under the condemnation. You were born under the wrath. And you're like, if that's true, it is an absolute miracle that anyone could ever be born again. And at that, I would say, you understand, you get it. You see, every time someone is born into the kingdom of God, a 90-year-old woman with a dead womb has a baby. That's how miraculous the gospel is. That's how glorious Christ is. You know, most people have this view of the gospel... And I tried to think of some illustration that we're lying on a battlefield and we're wounded because we've done some bad things. We've been cut a little bit. We got a few bullet holes in us, but we're still breathing and we can still see and we can still feel. And so here comes Jesus walking across the battlefield, singing Amazing Grace. And we just hear that sweet voice and we roll over on our side. And with our last gasping breath, we say, here, Jesus, take hold of me. That's most people's view of the gospel. And that's absolutely false and erroneous. You're dead. 
you died. You were asleep in the barracks and the bomb went off and you never made it to the battlefield. You were dead in your sleep back there. How in the world did He rescue me if I never made it to the battlefield? Because they drug my dead body out to the battlefield and I continued to get shot time and time again laying out there in the middle of it as the bombs went off and you're telling me He gave me life? It's exactly what I'm telling you. <laughs> the new birth's a miracle. When someone's born again, it's greater than the miracle of a 90-year-old woman with a, with a dead womb giving birth to a baby. Because you've always been dead. You've always been without anything at all to move you toward God. And to see the glory of God. And for Jesus to walk out into the midst of deadness. You know what they've been doing in Turkey? And I'll stop over this. I, I don't think they've found anybody in the last couple of days. But just digging through rubble. Moving body after body. It's a whole, The news stopped showing it. I was like, why did you stop showing it? Because people are just digging off rocks. Moving bodies. Moving bodies. Moving bodies. And then they'll... Find somebody alive. Day eight, I think was the, y'all can correct me, I think day eight was, I'm like, how in the world? Can you imagine digging through eight days and you come across somebody's alive? And you're like, how in the world did you make it? You do realize you being born again is a far greater miracle than that. Because nothing was lying on the battlefield but dead bodies. And Jesus picked you up and breathed life into you. And you went from death to life. You went from darkness to light. Because of the grace of God. You see how wonderful this gospel is? It's better than you thought. Because you were worse than you thought. Last question, we'll pray. And it's just simply this. Who are you married to? You were born married. You were born in union with a very sinful husband. He failed to protect you and He failed to provide for you. He led you into sin and you died as His bride. But along came another and His name was Jesus Christ. And He calls you to Himself. Let me ask you this morning, have you turned from your sin and gladly rejoiced at your new husband because He has done everything right and He has won for you eternal life? Let's pray.